morning, Gregory House, north and south. It's good to see you. Um, today, uh, as you'll remember, uh, last time I was with you, or several times ago, in fact, we talked about the Christ reality with respect to um, the reality of God, the reality of humanity, the reality of the world, that Jesus Christ is actually the canon and the hermeneutic to think about all of reality and to see reality in Jesus Christ. What I want to do today is pick up on that second point, um, humanity, and I want to talk more and press in more to what it means that, that humanity is the image of God. And the next time we're together, um, I, want to, I want to take an aspect of that, um, the maleness and femaleness of the image, that God created humanity in his image, explicitly male and female, and talk about what that means, male and female, he made them, and, all, and, and the implications of that, some of them at least, because it's vast, obviously. So um, let's pray, and off we will go. The Lord be with you. Living Lord Jesus Christ, we come as you have bid us, as you are a faithful and true high priest, to um, bring us into that place that you've ever been, the bosom of the Father. And we ask now in the power of the Spirit that you would open up the Father's bosom to us and that you would give us a, an increasingly deeper share in your sonship and your knowledge of the Father, of the Father's acceptance and delight and love for you, uh, that you would continue to form us in yourself, conform us to yourself. Um, so important to that is our theological formation. Uh, we pray that you would um, continue to impart your very mind to us, um, and holistically so, so that there's a, a redemption, a sanctifying of our affective life and our intuitive life and our imagination and our volition, the whole of us. Uh, do that, we pray. Uh, I pray that you would seize upon and, and, and rid us of any encumbrances that uh, would uh, hinder us in pressing further up and further into uh, our discipleship in this way. Uh, I pray that you'd be glorified in this, that we would know that to do theology is to do theology in your very presence, uh, you being our teacher, our instructor, our, our choir master, the leader of our worship, and let this be worshipful, we pray in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. So let's talk, first of all, let's, let's start out talking about um, the human is created person, right? One of the most basic affirmations of Christian anthropology is that the human is created person, and you might think, gosh, I mean, that's a truism, and it's redundant. Not quite, right? Um, there are persons who are uncreated, right? Namely, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all of what it means to be person is going to be um, relative, right? We, we learn what personhood is. Personhood is. Our personhood is, as we think about that and learn that relative to who God is. So there's uncreated persons. There's created persons that aren't human. Angels, right? We, unique, right? We are unique in that the human is a created person, right? Both a creature and a person. When we confess that we are created, whatever else we might want to say there, we're confessing that we're creatures whose creator is God, right? That we are possessed of finitude, the gift of finitude, right? That, um, that our humanity um, is um, that, uh, maybe we could say that, that God-designed boundary in which we can flourish, right? Um, and be rid of 
so much of actually what modernity wants to foist upon us is the, the perception or the delusion of infinitude, right? That's a heavy burden. The gift of being finite, the gift of being dependent. We're dependent people. Um, you all have belly buttons, right? Um, that tells us something. You've never existed for a split second of your existence without being utterly, profoundly dependent on the other for your very sustenance, right? You were umbilically um, bound to your mother uh, in procreation. That's a sacramental sign of something that's true about you throughout. Um, we are dependent people, right? And, and that too, that, that dependence is the boundary in which we can actually flourish in authentic personhood rather than press into that um, delusion, illusion of um, autonomy, right, selfdom. And that we are human beings who in body and soul were created good. To be a created person is to be created by a good God and therefore created good, right? Our humanity, in other words, the whole of it, isn't our shame, but our glory. It's a glorious, glorious thing to be a, a human. Um, what we do, the way we vandalize and uh, render inauthentic our humanity, that's another story altogether. But that we were made human is our glory, it's a gift. When Christians confess that we're persons, we confess that we have relative independence. What I mean here is we have individuality, right? We're, we're individuals. We're not possessed of um, that, that perversion of the person which is autonomy, right? We have real individuality under God. Real I-ness, you might say, right? Real I-ness relative to the thouness of God, the thouness of the other, uh, human as well, divine in you. There were individuals with profound, albeit derivative value, and I wanna, I wanna, I wanna make sure we get that. Humans have derivative value. We actually don't have value in ourselves because one of the things I want, I want you to see and just be in the habit of of doing, and it's a countercultural habit, is never think about what it means to be human, irrespective of who God is. Right? That'll, 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 that'll undermine us every time. We have profound value, but our values derived from who we are relative to God. So what you see in modernity is, um, you'll often see you know, just an insistence on the value of people, but it's groundless. And so it's, it's so easily undermined see that all the time too and you see you see intimations all over the place that we don't actually believe that right to be a human on the edges of life the very very young the very very old boy we have a hard time ascribing value to them right burdensome um, and all the other ways in which we devalue and thin out what it means to be human belies um, that we don't actually have a, a, a robust understanding of this we have profound value always though relative to derivative from God and that we're moral agents to be a person means we're moral agents right we are respondable uh, and therefore responsible to God uh, to steward our humanity to be what image of God is in the world agents whose choices and actions are of tremendous and eternal import, right, for created persons. A human being is a created person. Now, against idealistic and materialistic notions of uh, the human person, idealistic and materialistic notions of anthropology, we might say something like, 
Gnostic notions, a lot of the therapeutic and our therapeutically preoccupied age is, is Gnostic, not all of it, a lot of it, um, or naturalistic tendencies uh, in, in modern anthropologies. We um, confess that we have original goodness, right, with respect to the whole person, right, over and against those things that would, that would reduce and diminish um, the bodily aspects of the human. Um, or reduce us naturalistically or materialistically, reduce us only to bodily aspects, in body and in soul, materially, immaterially. Um, there's original goodness in the whole person, original glory in the whole person. We are, in other words, as created persons, a psychosomatic unity, body and soul. That's what it means to be a human, by the way. Um, that's why, by the you know, when we're, when we're talking about what it means to be a person, and what it means to be image of God. When we talk about angels, for instance, there's there's personness there, but there's not imageness there. It has to do with the body, the bodily realities of our human existence. We're embodied souls and souled bodies, right? A psychosomatic unity. The whole of us, material, immaterial, good. Moreover, what we want to say here and affirm right off the bat is Christian anthropology affirms human individuality. Right? The sacredness of the I, individuality. At the same time, Christian anthropology will reject the totalizing of the, of the individual, which is the heresy of individualism, right? Apples and oranges, not, not a difference of degree there, but of kind. Individualism is a perversion of individuality and of the self, right? You, in, individualism will cause us to lose the self. We won't gain it there, we'll lose it. Um, and that is, you, you know, a particular, particularly modern, not exclusively, but particularly peculiarly, idolization of the self. We live in we live in the, the thraldom of selfdom, and that is that is a, a diminishing of the human person, right? A diminishing of the I-ness of a person. We lose ourselves there. Christian anthropology insists that authentic individuality is rooted in, discerned, in the context of, enacted in community. Right, that's a, that's, a, that's a Trinitarian issue there. Uh, we can talk about ourselves being real individuals rooted in community. Community with the divine other, community with the human other. We actually enact our eyeness there, learn it, discover it, and find that it's rooted right there. This is Christian anthropology, basic to it. So in some here, Christian anthropology gives humans profound value, profound dignity, and gives human existence meaning and purpose and significance. By the way, all real, real um, lacunas in modernity, right? Some of the things we see people really wrestling with is, does human life have intentionality? Does it have purpose? Is there a grain to move with or a grain to move against with respect to what it means to be a human? Christian anthropology affirms robustly, yes, there is. Uh, and so it's a profound affirmation of the glory, the beauty uh, of what it means to be human in a culture that you'll see is, is has all kinds of uh, influences that dehumanize us or thin out what it means to be human or that are deterministic. So let's, just, let's stop there for just a minute. What do you, what do you discern in our culture um, that, would, that, would, that would cause us or invite us to think about um, humanity in deterministic ways? Yeah. First thing I think of is uh, being inundated constantly 
That's actually, you know, that's a, that's a whole new, newish realm of study opening up now. It's called surveillance capitalism or things like that. But um, if you listen to uh, Mark Sayers, do you guys know who that is? Mark Sayers is it's an Australian and, and a cultural pundit of sorts. He does a podcast called uh, This Cultural Moment, and he talks a lot about that. Um, not with bourbon, but with cigarettes, right? So how do you how do you how do you how do you market cigarettes? First of all, like in a culture like ours, how do you convince people that have more than, than humans have ever had in the history of the world that they're constantly dissatisfied? Right. Um, but there's that. There's, you know, the, the thinking of humans as the, the economic person, the consumer, right? Which is, by the way, we're moving more and more. Philip Reif, it's a little bit of a dated book now, but it's coming back a lot with modern studies referring to it. But humans as the therapeutic man. Right, so we think a lot in terms of psychological determinations. We think a lot of, in terms of socio-political determinations. Right, demographics is destiny. Um, DNA is destiny. These types of, you know, that's that's a more nuanced conversation. The biological determinisms, but there's all kinds of ways in which modernity is far more is, is deterministic. Where Christian anthropology talks about true. Right, true freedom, true liberty, under the lordship of God. Right, it's so it's so much richer, so much richer. We could talk, and we have in the past, but think about this here when we're talking about dehumanizing trends. Right, um, the transientness of our culture, um, the, the, the bureaucracy of our culture. That you know, we're, we're technological people. We live in what Jacques Lowe called the technological age, which is different than just an affirmation of like technology is good. Right which is pencils and spoons and, you know, things like that. Taking a stick and knocking fruit out of a tree, that's technology. But to live in a technological age, it alters what we think a human being is. Right? So there's all of those influences going on. Over and against all of those, or right in the midst of it, we've got a robust affirmation of humanity as the image of God, and it's just glorious. Let's press in. I'm on page two, or, or part two here. Point two. Scripture teaches that in all of creation, there's one creature, us, the human creature, made in God's image and after God's likeness. Now, not animals, right? Not even angels. Again, there's a bodily dimension here that's just glorious. Human creature is unique in this way. We are and we bear God's image. This means that humankind is uniquely made to represent and reflect and, above all, relate and respond to God. Let's just let's back up in that sense just for a minute and talk about representation and reflection. 
right? So scripture will scripture has the prohibition that we see, you know, all over the place, that we are not to make idols on the earth, right? Now, one way you can talk about that is if you make an idol on the earth, um, you will be conformed to it. Think about the golden calf, right? So God delivers humanity profoundly from the clutches of Pharaoh and his chariots. And so there's a, a bull made, right? To depict the strength of God. Not to worship the bull, but to de- depict the strength of God. Pretty soon, the worship revolved around that looks nothing like God would have us be, right? And it defiles us as image bearers, right? So here, when we talk about um, representing and reflecting God as God's image, one of the things there that's important in the prohibition of idolatry is you don't set up an image of God on the earth because not only do you misimage God and therefore misimage yourself, but you abdicate your own image bearing. Right? It's an abdicate. God already has set up his image on the earth. And it's us, right? We don't abdicate that um, in any way. So we're made to represent and reflect, relate and respond to God. Right? It's the image of God that constitutes our uniqueness. Right? Um, my, my wife Kate and I, we used to laugh when our kids were in elementary school. We'd get these letters that are sent home and we'd try to count how many times in one page, you know, teachers or administration could tell you your child's utterly unique, right? Um, our uniqueness is, in, is relative to our bearing God's image. That's why. That's why there's a, there's a profound differentiation between us and all other of God's creatures. Profound significance, dignity, value, right? Image of God constitutes all these things. Now, that human beings are made in the image of God raises a whole bunch of things we want to address, right? What constitutes image of God? How are we to talk about that? Is, is, is the image of God something that's in us? Is it a particular aspect of us? Um, something different? How do we want to talk about that? What does it look like? relative to image of God to be sinful, to be fallen? Um, Does that have effect on the image of God? Um, Is it a forfeiture of image of God? What does it look like or mean to be redeemed, reconciled to God, renewed in Jesus Christ, um, participating in Jesus Christ? What does that mean relative to image of God? Does it affect image of God? In other words, does our fallenness um, and the glories of the gospel of our redemption, do they affect the image? Right? Um, what does it look like uh, and mean for us to be progressively conformed from one degree to the next, right, into the glorious image of Jesus Christ, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3. One of Augustine's great theological contributions to the church um, is that he talked about the human in terms of a fourfold state fourfold state of humanity. What this is going to do for us is give us all, give, give us an ability to really think about image of God in a nuanced way. A fourfold state of humanity. What Augustine points out is um, humans, um, there, there, are, there are four states in which humans have, now do, or will exist, right? And in each of these states, we can say something and we can bring out nuances relative to what it means to be God's image. So he would say, well, Humans have existed, no longer do. There's none that do. Have existed in an original state, right? The way in which God made them. Um, humans to be fallen east of Eden and outside of it, at least to this point, outside of Jesus Christ means they live in a, like Augustine would say, a perverted state. 
bent, diminished, um, corrupted, perverted. Humans who are in Jesus Christ, right, east of Eden, now in Jesus Christ, live in a renewed state. Um, bound to Jesus Christ, being, being renewed according to his image, right, still sinful, right, um, and then a perfected state, which one human lives in and one only, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, entered in now to the telos for which God made humanity and all of us moving, moving toward that, all of us who are in him moving toward that. So Augustine says there's four states, there's four conditions in which humans live. Original, perverted, renewed, perfected. What I want to do here is use that to talk about a fourfold state of the image of God. Right. Use, use Augustine, what Augustine's given us, a fourfold state of humanity to talk about a fourfold image of God and bring out some of the nuances of what it means to bear God's image. Questions, comments so far? All right, let's go. Um, let's talk about the original image of God, what it means that God made us in the beginning in his image. And look with me, if you will, at, at Genesis 1. I'm going to bring out a couple of things that are really important here. I'm going to pick up in verse 20. Get there. And if repetition is a literary device, listen for the repetition here. It's really important. Picking up in verse 20. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea, uh, sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarm according to their kinds. That's the phrase, right? So what it, uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but according to their kinds, see that. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. There it is the third time, that phrase. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Four. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, five. And the livestock according to their kinds, six. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, seven. Right? In, in, from verse 20 to 25, seven times we see that phrase, according to its kind. So what is, what is the measure of a bird? A bird. What is the measure of a beast? A beast. What's the measure of a fish? A fish. And then God said, let us make man, Adam, in our image after our likeness. No, not according to their kind. In our image after our likeness. The true measure of a human is always and ever God. And therefore never, ever ourselves. We are not the canon, the datum point, the controlling principle of what it means to be a human. Right? You, miss, you miss that, you miss everything. Scripture doesn't here explicitly tell us what the image of God is. 
right? As close as it comes, we'll pick up on this um, next time. As close as it comes is this, it does say explicitly, male and female, he created them. Magnificent. But for a later time. What this text does do here in Genesis is it introduces a radical qualitative distinction between human and non-human creatures that are created on the solidarity of the sixth day, or that share that solidarity of the sixth day. So right, we do have that um, with the rest of the creaturely realm, we do. But what scripture is telling us here is we are radically, qualitatively, right, in kind, not in degree, in kind, differentiated from animals. We're not glorified animals, we're not just, we're not just of an, a, a, a qualitative elevation there. Radically different, differentiated. We, and only we, bear the image of God. Now what you see in our culture, obviously, right, there's all kinds of reasons for it, but you see like, you know, um, the elevation of animal kind. Some of that comes with, with you know, like, like the, the personification of animals that we see in cartoons and things all the time. But the, but, but the, the diminishing of humans um, to, to an animal of just a different sort. Does that make sense? I mean, the 20th century really, really bears that out. Scripture here, right off the bat, tells us something very, very different than that. We are, and we only are created according to God's image. So let's think about that. Go over to the next page. Let's think about what that entails and what, what renders us different from, from the animal realm. These are some of the things that are at least intuited here and that canonically, right, as we read across the, the corpus of Scripture, we see this all over the place. But talk with me here about these things. We can say we bear God's image in terms of our mental, relational, linguistic capacities, right? Human beings are language creatures, uniquely so. We don't, we don't bay and moo and oink and things like that. Um, we're sophisticated, right? We have rational capacities. We don't just think, we think about our thinking. And then we think about the way we're thinking about our thinking. That is incredibly complex. Right? Human beings um, show something unique about themselves in our mental, rational, linguistic capacities. Right? We were made to hear from God to, to um, render um, intelligent response to God right? and to be able to speak not only to, but about God, right? To, to proclaim the realities of God in the cosmos. Humans are profoundly differentiated from all other creatures in this way, right, as human persons. With that comes, comes this. There is, a, there is a, a structure to human thought and human speech that is to bear and reflect the holiness of God, right? The righteousness of God. Um, and there are ways in which we can steward our mental, linguistic, intellectual capacities that are ungodly, right? Not, not in the, not in the um, um, sanctimonious sense, but truly, right? That which does not conform to or reflect God. There's a, there's a, a structure of our human being that is, to, that is to be obedient unto God. Moderns don't often think like that, by the way that we can have disobedient minds. It does not occur to most people that that is the case. Right? You, 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 there's, a, there's an element in which we're to conform to the righteousness of God there. Now, do any of you have dogs and cats? 
Used to. Used to. Now, there are there are ways in which animals think, right? Animals problem solve, real low level, right? We have Katie and I have a couple of cats, real low level, um, but they do that, right? They do that. We are we are unique in this way, in which there is a there is a structure of our of our um, intellectual linguistic capacities that is to conform to the holiness of God. Does that make sense? I, I wrestle here and I want to avoid kind of fastidiously that language of moral. And I'll tell you why. Right? Some people might say there's a moral dimension to our, to our thinking. Right? You, you can be moral or immoral in your thinking. You can be moral and, or immoral in the, the way you steward words. True enough. I only want to point out that in Genesis 3, um, with, with the serpentine deception, that's actually an invitation to be moral in a different way. Have you guys ever seen that? So, so the evil one doesn't come to humanity and say, hey, you want to trash the world? Not that. It's why does God get to mark off what is good and evil? And why don't you do that? Why don't you discern what's good and evil? In other words, why don't you enact your own moral project uh, and foist it on the world? And don't do it in conformity to God, but do it in flight and defiance from God. Right? And so, so part of, you know, people like Alexander Schmemann and, Lots of people, Bart, lots of people do the same type of thing. Is they make the insight that Jesus Christ has come to put an end to the moral project of humanity, mm-hmm. right? And to put an end to the religious product, uh, project of humanity to boot, right? So I think it's something more than just moral. You see our culture, by the way, our culture is infatuated with morality, mm-hmm. right? Infatuated with it. Um, it's not that so much as it is we are to conform to the holiness of God. Right? So there, there's a way in which we can be unrighteous, unholy, ungodly in this way. We have effective volitional capacities. Again, so do dogs and cats, right? Uh, you'll see dogs scamper off, you know, when you yell at them with your tail in between their legs. Really, really, really low level, right? Ours are, we are actually made to enter into the joy of God. Right, to enter into the joy of God. We are, we are made to experience um, the delight of conformity to God right, in ways that um, no other creature is. No other creature is. Um, we have effective volitional capacities so that we can render reflective, joyful, willing conformity to God. Right, obedience under God. Now we have relational capacities, right? We're not we're not herd creatures. We're not pack animals, right? We have relational capacities. So in the in the um, relational ecosystem of creation, we see this that we're meant to relate to God, right? Uniquely so, as His image bears, we're meant to relate to one another, right? In profound ways that dignify the other, um, glorify God discern God and the other. We are to have rightful relations with ourselves, right? It's the realm of psychology, we might say, for, for moderns, but we're to have right relations to ourselves and right relations to creation, to the ground, right? It's a relational ecosystem in which God has placed us to, to be and to bear his image as no others do. Right, and so we're unique from you. Know, like humans don't mate; they have sex, but they don't mate. It's real different, right? 
uh, in all of these ways, we're unique. Humans have doxological capacities. We're, as you might say, homo adorans. We're uniquely made for worship, and, and we will, no matter what. Right? If we won't worship God, we'll worship something else. Our face in the mirror, food. There's no end to what we'll worship. Um, but we will worship because we're, we're built for it. We're hard. It's, it's, not, it's not software. It's hard wiring. Right? We are homo adorans. We are unique this way. We are made to be creatures of faith and worship adoration, right? We're made as a complement to God in this way and bear his image in this way. And then we can talk about functional capacities, right? We're made to have dominion. Um, we have opposable thumbs. It's a really good thing, right? Um, you couldn't give lions and tigers and bears enough time or resources to build that chair, let alone Rome or London, Paris or the Taj Mahal or something like that. Humans are incredible this way, right, meant to um, um, participate and collaborate with God in his ongoing creational activities in the world, right, and we're uniquely made that way. And we might even say things like this, um, that's a great article, first things a couple of years ago about this, um, farm animals, right, um, how do mothers nurse their young farm, farm animals? Udders right? are underneath cows and goats and swine and so on and so forth. Think about just anatomically the way we're created, right? Human mothers bring a child right up, right? Right here, and they stare into that child's eyes and they coo and smile and they speak and they, by doing that, they call forth response, right? We image God bodily in all kinds of ways all kinds of ways. We'll return to that in just a minute. But let's think about implications here. The fact that humans are made in the image of God, let's say this, touches upon all that it means to be authentically human. Right? The whole of us are made in the image of God, and therefore the whole of us are to be conformed to the image of God. Um, This can't be reduced to just one or another aspect of what it means to be human. Right? There's nothing outside of um, the impress of God's image in us that is not made to reflect God and, and is not in redemption made to be conformed to God. Um, and you can't reduce any little, any one element of us to that. Why is, it, why is that significant? Why like people, people die if you don't get this right, actually. Why can't you reduce image of, uh, uh, what, why is it significant to see this and dangerous to miss it? To reduce humanity to any one thing. If you say something like, um, some quasi-gnostic way, right, the image of God is, it relates particularly or exclusively to our rational capacities. What happens if you're profoundly um, altered there, diminished there, right? By, by birth or by accident? Is that a diminished image of God, right? Or for that matter, if you're just real modest and you know the next person is um, profoundly gifted in that way, are they more the image of God, right? 
to reduce that, to re- reduce image of God to mere functional capacities or something like that, um, alters and endangers humans. <laughs> right? People die when you miss that. Yeah, yeah I just think about how if you, when you reduce humanity in any one of these, you listed here, mental, affective, relational, psychological, something, um, you just end up missing so much. <coughs> in our midst, isn't he? It's really, it's really something. It's really something. Now, you, you guys know, right? Places like Iceland would say, we've, we've eradicated the problem of doubt. We've been able to identify it without exception almost and, and eliminate those people um, altogether, right? Because there's, there's an assessment of quality of life there, um, either, either um, acknowledged or conveyed or withheld. And then when you, when you miss that, people die. You, when you uh, when you whiff on that, it should be behind. Um, and so, humans have a real long issue, uh, um, uh, track record, don't they, of um, denying the humanity of the other for all kinds of reasons. I mean, Matt just talked about you know the, the consumeristic person, right? Um, person as you know widget producer and widget um, uh, purchaser. That's one. Not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why people on the on the edges of human existence are so endangered because as soon as you stop to produce widgets or buy widgets, you're not valuable anymore. You know, value, value is ascribed to how well you plug into to that kind of a culture, right? All of what it means to be human <clears throat> is what it means to be image of God. Humans, moreover, don't have the image of God, right? Like I have car keys, right? And I can lose car keys or set car keys down and walk away. Humans are image of God, right? The whole of what it means to be human is what it means to be image of God. We can we can use those as synonyms. <clears throat> now, Irenaeus, you guys know him, wonderful church father, made a really important insight here that humans are created in both the image and likeness of God. When we talk about original image, this is a really important thing, image and likeness of God. We might get at that same thing by talking like this. There's a way in which you can talk about the image of God structurally and the way in which you can talk about it functionally, right? The way you can talk about it statically, if you will, I don't necessarily like that term a ton, or dynamically, right? And this is really important when we get into the perverted image, right? In what way do we retain the image of God? In what way is the image of God profoundly compromised, right? Aaron Nass would say, we are the image of God. Fallen people are the image of God. They're not the likeness of God. We might say something like this. All of the ways in which structurally God has made us as his image, <clears throat> those retain, right? Again, really important, right? You want, you want to not miss this or else you run around talking about people who, who are 
fallen and not in Jesus Christ is somehow subhuman. It's not the case. The most basic thing you can ever say about a person there too is image of God. That's what you call them too. We are image of God structurally, right? The, The very way we're formed very way we're designed and intended to be um, and are called to be and, and originally made to be the image of God functionally. We enact our structure functionally. Right? Um, dyna- we dynamically enact that which is constitutionally true of us. Or you might say something like this. Humans are made to be the image of God now. Right? Made to be the image of God. And what that looks like is they are to enact that by imaging, verb, God, right? Um, we are the image of God and therefore are called to image God. Does that make sense? Really important here. And what you see then is be fruitful, multiply, right? Manifest my image, project my image in the world. And by the way, as you engage with me in terms of my ongoing, you know, con- continuing creation, as you, as you do that, create according to the image of God. You guys ever read Frankenstein, right? What happens when we don't create according to the image of God? That which we create rises up and kills us, right? Or ex machina. You ever seen that movie? Modern day, modern day, Victor Frankenstein, that type of a thing. Be careful of what you make if you don't make and you, and you don't enact the image of God that way. What you do is going to come around and it's going to put an end to you, right? Be careful. Image of God, lastly, this implication here. Image of God is the very essence of humanity. It constitutes the very basis of what it means to be human. And therefore, image of God is the irreducible, ineradicable basis for human value. Right? This will continue as we go on. But, but when we talk about original image, let's, let's say that. Um, and let's just, let's just let's lay that down. Do you guys want to say anything there? It's very fragile. If you don't talk to me, I get sad. <laughs> Let's talk about image of God, east of Eden, right? Post Genesis three. What we could say here is the perverted image of God, that which has been subject to the ravages of sin. What do we want to say about um, image of God in that state? If humans are, let's get this right off the bat, if humans are image of God, then for humans to lose or forfeit image of God altogether means that humans aren't humans anymore. This is not. This is, we, want to, we want to deny that emphatically right off the bat. And even deny it uh, and make sure you get that, even in the way we sometimes talk about people. A low-hanging fruit, right? Adolf Hitler. Let's, 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 let's talk about him for a minute. Um, you'll often hear people say things like, he's insane. He's not. He's really, really sane, right? Don't let him off the hook that easy. He's a beast. He's not a beast. If he was a beast, um, we, we might begin to understand some of these things. What he is is someone who, and he's not unique in this way, he enacts incredible inhumanity. He visits incredible inhumanity on humans, right? And falls so incredibly short and enacts his, his Imago Dei in such utterly perverted ways, right? Um, uh, that he not only, not only um, does violence against God, but he does violence against what it means to be a human being. 
for himself and for others, right? The image of God in its structural, right, in its, in its nominal, right, according to the noun, not the verb, that retains, used to be, we see that all over the place. Because as soon as soon as you as soon as as soon as you would go even a step down the, the road to saying that someone doesn't retain image of God, then you're saying that they're subhuman. That's a real dangerous place to be, right? When human beings became sinful, we didn't cease to be human, <clears throat> but we did cease to be fully authentically human. Right. Truly human, yes. Authentically human? No. <laughs> right. Back to Irenaeus, <clears throat> you lose the likeness of God. You retain the image of God, you lose the likeness of God. That is profoundly compromised. <clears throat> what this is telling us, what we want to get at when we talk about this, is that sin isn't natural to, it's not a proper part of the human constitution, right? It's, it's parasitic. It's got a parasitic existence. It's got an alien existence um, to us. But it does alter, and profoundly so, our human constitution and the enactment of it. That's the big part, the enactment of it. What we want to say regarding fallen humans is that the image of God has been terrifically distorted, but not lost, right? It's been defaced, but it's not been erased. Now, if you think about this even missionally and, and ministerially, um, if, you, if all you have for image of God is a category that's, that's kind of structural, then you'd have to say something like this. To be outside of Jesus Christ in East of Eden makes, makes no difference whatsoever with respect to the image of God. It profoundly does, right? What you'd also have to say then is to be in Christ or not in Christ has no bearing whatsoever upon the Imago Dei, right? In other words, um, Relative to God and Jesus Christ, um, image of God has no, there's no effect upon image of God relative to God and Jesus Christ. There is profoundly so. So to be east of Eden, not yet in Jesus Christ, um, now we can talk about an image of God that's defaced and not erased, profoundly compromised, right? And the enactment of it is profoundly that. I give you three texts here. We probably don't need for time's sake to talk about them. <coughs> But you see, Genesis 5 is an affirmation, right? After Genesis 3, that's the big issue. That image of God retains. Genesis 9, um, Deluvian text, flood text. Um, human beings retain the image of God. Even if God says the intentions of their heart are constantly evil, right? Who's? Those who are and, and, and uh, those who are my image and bear my image but don't enact it. Does that make sense? Or that great James text, uh, James 3.9, which talks about the tongue. The significance of these texts is that each of them appears after the fall. Right? And each of them indicates that human beings continue to bear God's image. What they also do is demonstrate that humans must not do violence to one another in word and deed. Genesis 9 is to do not shed human blood. Right? Don't do violence one to another. The James text is watch your tongue. Don't murder one another with your tongue. Right? We must not do violence to each other in word or deed, given that humans, even fallen humans, are image of God. To do violence 
to God's image is to do violence to God himself. Right? To do violence for, for one image bearer, to do violence to another, is to do violence to image of God that you steward. Right? I give you this, I think it's a wonderful quote from Anthony Holcomb here. He says, and I'm quoting him, you see in your notes, the reason that murder is here, Genesis 9, said to be such a heinous crime is that it must be, that it must be punished by death is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God and represented God. Therefore, when one kills a human being, not only does he take the person's life, but he hurts God himself, does violence to God, the God who is reflected in that individual to, individual. to touch the image of God is to touch God himself, to kill, to murder the image of God is to do violence to God himself. End quote, says Hokemon. Um, we might say here, right, that, that great penitential psalm that's such a, so prominent in the Lenten season, against you, Lord, only have I said, right? The affirmation here is um, to, to do violence to image bearers is to do violence to God right? as we continue to be his image. Um, now look, I have, I have here on this page <clears throat> all of the, the things we talked about with respect to the original image, right? All of these are retained at one level at least, right? But let's talk about them a little bit. Human beings retain as perverted images, fallen images, sinful image bearers. We retain mental, rational, linguistic continuities of what it means to be a human as God made them, right? But there are huge discontinuities. Tell me about those. What, what are they? We wouldn't say something like, you know, to, 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 be, to be sinful, to be dead in sin and transgressions, like Paul would say, um, is that we have a lower IQ. Human beings are brilliant, right? And really creative. That's not the case. Well, what is it? What is it? Well, what's been altered there? Well, I mean, there's diseases and things that affect those capacities that weren't there in the original. Certainly there's that. There's that Chaotic creation, right? For sure, there's that. Can we say something like this? It's not the structure of, of, hu of, of human intelligence. It's the course in which it's carried out now subject to self-lordship and God-defiance, right? It's the, the course of human reasoning, like Paul would say. Um, it's by the hardness of their heart that they've been rendered ignorant. <laughs> their minds are darkened, right? Their IQ hasn't been lowered. Their minds are darkened. There's some, something else that's going on, right? So, so in terms of the carrying out, the enactment of these things, uh, the Constitution remains. The enactment of it betrays that there's something profoundly altered, profoundly. Um, we have profound um, linguistic capacities, right? Um, what is the tongue made for? What's its design? How, does it, how, does it, how, do, how do we steward the tongue in accordance with the grain of existence as God has created it? Here, we see that we tend to do that against the grain, right? We haven't been diminished in the capacity, but the, but the enactment of the capacity manifests all over the place that it's profoundly altered, right? The image of God is defaced. Or, or as Aaron Ness would say, the likeness of God is gone. The image remains. Effective volitional, re relational continuities. Let's think about that. The, re the relational ecosystem as God created it is still there. But if there's alienation, right? Scripture talks in terms of alienation. Um, even enmity, if there's hostility, 
right, between us and God, the basis of the whole ecosystem is fractured, right? So how is it carried out and enacted this way? Ruptured relationships, right? We're still profoundly relational. Those are ruptured. The relation that one is to properly have with oneself, right? There, there's, a, there's a rupture that's right in us, right? As Solzhenitsyn says, right? It runs right through our hearts. We're, we're alienated. There's self-alienation that goes on. And by the way, we're alienated from the ground. We're alienated from, from creation. Talk to me about doxological continuities. Are human beings still worshiping beings? Are, we st- are fallen humans not yet in Christ Jesus? Are they still worshiping beings? Yeah. Well, uh, can I ask a question? Yeah, for sure. Sometimes I feel like uh, the way that sin is talked about, there is what I feel to be a bit of a confusion between sin and finitude. Like humans are finite by nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Hard lessons learned, right? Hard Don't eat those learned. berries, they're poisonous. How do you know? Well, <laughs> so, like, I don't know. Sometimes I think, you know, it's easy to think that, or I just I just feel like there's a bit of a confusion there where yeah, I think, sometimes we're just finite and that's okay, and we make mistakes. And I think, such, and there even like miscommunication yep. is, is just part of being finite creatures. Um, but then there's the sin aspect too, where, uh, you know, we kill someone because. Yeah, let's, I mean, we, we talked earlier, um, right off the bat, we talked about uh, part of being a, 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 a created person is that we're finite. And that is, I mean, that's such a gift to us, right? You guys, you guys all know, living in a technological society tries to push the boundaries of infinitude, right? You should be omni-available, right? You should, an, you should answer every text within 10 minutes and so on and so forth. And you guys know what a burden that is, right? Um, your private space should all of a sudden become public space all over the place. That's, that's a terrible thing, right? It actually undermines personhood. Finitude is good. Um, to mistake is not to sin. And, and we want to be careful how we store that theologically because we say that all the time, right? Um, you do something heinous and wicked and say, I made a mistake. That wasn't a mistake, right? If, if you need an eraser for it or a mop for it, right, to, to inadvertently knock over a glass of milk, isn't a mistake. Or it's not a sin, it's a mistake. Um, so we need to call things what they are. That's, that's just part of being a person, to, to make errors in terms of learning, right? By the way, that's really important. You gotta, you gotta have space, you gotta have private space, actually, to work things out, mm-hmm. to say the stupid thing. <laughs> you just have to, in order to learn. Um, those, aren't, those aren't necessarily and often not sins, they're mistakes. Mm-hmm. But, but we often, by the way, won't 
we won't, we don't like to we almost never use the language of sin, do we? Like maybe at church, but not a, not outside of church. We wouldn't use that language anymore because we live in a highly therapeutic society, and we think that undermines that that make that hurts our feelings, that makes us feel bad. Which of course it does outside the gospel. But right, you don't render evil heinous things. You don't you don't call them mistakes. They're not they're not bad. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that in terms of Christ as well. I mean, we have the knowledge that he learned, he, he learned obedience. I'm imagining he made mistakes, but I don't think people think of him making mistakes. Um, that's a real, I mean, probably as he's learning carpentry, as he's learning. Our Lord wasn't born glorified, right? He's, he's entered into that state of post-resurrection but he wasn't born glorified. And so that's part of human development that, you know, you read a text like Luke 2.52 and, um, uh, and he grew in wisdom and knowledge, favor with God and man, right? And, and if we have this notion that our Lord kind of floated and hovered above the landscape as a quasi-human, um, then we, just, we, can't, we, can't, we can't make sense of that whatsoever, right? Um, it's not that he moved from sinful to sinless or anything like that. Um, but there's there's a real human dynamic development in the life of our Lord and the power of the Spirit. There's that for sure. Does that help? Um, are human beings fallen human beings, are they still are they still homo adorans worshiping things? Man you see that, we're up to our eyeballs in that, in our world. And we really want to see that. And it makes every bit of you know, every bit of import, like when you think about doing evangelism, right? Mm-hmm. Christians aren't people, you know, or, 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 you know, there aren't religious groups that have, that have the market cornered on faith and worship, and you're going out into a world to, um, to try to bring others into faith and worship. They're already in faith and worship, right? It's a matter of what you're, who or what you're trusting, right? What it is that you're worshiping, it's a call to drop idols, right, and come into the mission of God, come in, uh, have your worship sanctified, right, and have, have whatever it is that you're trusting in, to put that down, and to trust in the one who's able to deliver, right. So human beings are profoundly um, engrossed with worship. You see that all over our culture, right. Some of, some of the big trends in our culture, many people, sociologists and whatnot, are saying um, these, are, these are new religions, right? Um, the more secular we get, um, there are powerful new religions going across the landscape. Human beings continue to be homo adornants. The discontinuity here with the, the original creation is that we do not worship the Lord, right? And not only do not will not, right? Um, so on and so forth, you guys get it. What shouldn't be missed here? is that as fallen image bearers, post-fall humans are living, breathing contradictions, right? There's continuity, there's discontinuity. And think about it, it's really something. Humans are capable of profound faith, zealous worship. To, the, to that matter, we're, we're capable of um, real altruism, emotional maturity, sensitivity. Um, we're capable of that. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. You should expect that from your neighbor, right? Um, 
capable of profound faith, zealous worship, not faith and worship rendered to God, right? Um, we have eyes for beauty. We have appetites for destruction, right? We're profoundly intelligent and creative. We have geniuses for evil. We're purveyors of poetry and pornography, right? We're that. We make slave ships and we make spaceships, right? Uh, we make uh, assisted living for people in need and um, we build concentration camps, <laughs> right? Where that type of folk used to be, right? An image that is profoundly perverted. I love this quote, it's so great. Blaise Pascal. What sort of freak then is man, he says. What kind of freak are we? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious, the judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, glory and refuse of the universe. Right, you know what refuse is. He's, he's making a really good point and, and he's tying together. C.S. Lewis, by the way, does this wonderful thing. In order to be really bad, you have to have the capacity to be really good, right? Mm -hmm. That we are God's image, and that we retain God's image, east of Eden, is what renders us, when we go bad, to be really, really, really bad, right? In ways that you never ascribe to lions and tigers and bears, right? Let's talk about some of the implications here. Image of God provides the necessary backdrop, right? The original image of God provides that backdrop or context for understanding what human sin really is. If we don't have it, if all we have is how human beings are, then what we do is we normalize this, right? How do you, how do you know what water, what water, that water is wet when you're a fish, right? Um, there's something profoundly wrong with us. And if we don't have image of God as datum there, as controlling principle, maybe you could say, um, we're in trouble. Human sin assumes image of God, right? Human sin assumes image of God in such a way is that we would never ascribe sin to lions and tigers and bears, right? Or cats. You can say our cat is frustrating. It's ridiculous. Um, it might it might betray the chaos of the world, but Hunter and Cleo are sinful. They're not that. The original image gives us that data point. Does that make sense? Image of God provides that backdrop to think about just how sinful sin really is. And by the way, um, the two big specters in the world, right, sin and death, you can't, you can't quite look at them unless, in the, unless you can turn around in the gospel, right, and do that. Sin is so profoundly horrific, right? It's so, it's so haunting. You can't, you can't look square at it. You have to deny it and run away, right? We've got to be people of the fig leaves, right? You can only actually start to deal with that as you deal with it in the realities of the gospel. Same with death. Um, the, the backdrop of the original image of God provides the backdrop for which we can really start to understand how sinful sin really, really is. Does that make sense? Because one of the things we can do is we can, aside from seeing that um, 
our image of God is to manifest God, how bad that we do, what we can get at here is that our enactment of our perversion is violence against God and his image, right? Sobering stuff. The fact that humans continue to bear God's image after the fall means, among other things, at least in this sense, that we're depraved. We're not deprived, right? We retain God's image, but God's image is corrupt. We re- God's likeness is the thing, right? The enactment of God's image is the thing that's been profoundly distorted and compromised, right? Um, but here, in terms of the church's mission, you might want to think, um, you're, we're rock solid in terms of what it means to be a human is always image of God, right? Always that. As soon as, as, soon, as soon as you miss that, people die, by the way. Does that make sense? You guys want to say anything here? What you're always doing in the gospel, what you're always doing in evangelism, is identifying and affirming that people are image of God and calling them to, um, in Jesus Christ, enact it. Right? Calling them to be who they were made to be. Does that make sense? Let's talk about renewed image. What it means to be east of Eden in Jesus Christ. That's us. Right? What we'd want to say is just as there's something, a profound effect upon the image of God um, in, in post-fall, east of Eden, human existence, now to, to exist in Christ and to have life in Christ, it's actually affected image of God. It's done something profound. It's not just a rearrangement of mental furniture or affirmation of propositional truths. The word of God actually enacts a, a, a reconstituting of God's image in us, right? right to the core of our being. Primary thrust, I'm on point three here, the primary thrust of the creation account in Genesis with respect to image of God is that there's a radical qualitative distinction between God and animals. We saw that. That's, that's one of the biggest things that image of God does there in the creation account. Now, image of God's a canonical issue. So what, what, is, what does the Newer Testament do here? The primary thrust there with respect to image of God is that God became human in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truest, fullest, image of God, the image of God, the image of God in its ultimate sense. What we see in the New Testament is that to be redeemed is to be redeemed in and by that one who is the truthful image of God and to be conformed to him in the whole of us, even our humanity. And I wanted to bring this up later, but let's just, let's just bring it up here so we get it right off the, right off the bat. In the Genesis account, we see humans are made in God's image. And we've been saying everything that it means to be human bears upon what it means to be God's image. Now, what in the Genesis account prior to the incarnation, right? What is it about God that's human? Well, we're not Aryans. We'd never say there was a time when the sun was not. But we would, of course, say there was a time when the sun wasn't incarnate. Now, before the sun's incarnate, what is there that's human about God? qualitatively nothing, right? Then what is it about our humanity that bears God's image? 
at that point would have to say, if that's all we had, we'd have to say something, well, it wouldn't have to do necessarily ontologically with our humanity. There's nothing human about God, right? And there's nothing divine about our humanity. What are we saying? This, this comes to us in progressive revelation, right? What we have to get is Jesus, we, we were created right off the bat. In Genesis, we were created by and through and for the Son according to the image that the Son would be, right? And we were made to conform to him. That takes, that takes, a, a, that takes apostolic witness to get at, a canonical witness that Genesis won't give us. So what we see in the New Testament, the big sweeping thrust of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is image of God. And we're redeemed by that one who is image to be renewed in our image bearing in him and ultimately to be conformed according to the whole of us, including the bodily dimensions of our personhood in him. So I give you text, but you, you know this well. Second Corinthians, the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, who is God's image, right? Not only truly and fully, but authentically, right? Apart from him, that's the thing we're missing. Jesus Christ is the visible image, the icon, the sacrament, right? Jesus Christ is the sacrament of God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He's the exact imprint, the exact expression, says Hebrews 1 of God such that John, right, our Lord and John, anyone who sees Jesus Christ sees the Father, not because Jesus Christ is the Father, but because he bears perfectly. Can you speak of that in terms of um, the idea of, like, it's, it's not necessarily like a rescue mission that he becomes human. It was always the intention. Yeah, this is, this is really important. Again, I'd get at that later, but let's just talk about it now. Um, it's really important to get that, that we were made as humans, right, to humanly bear the image of God according to Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time, right, born of a woman, Galatians, um, is to be human. If that's not the case, then we, got, we have a really hard time working through what it means to be the image of God as humans, Right, a really hard time. But also then what we do is we render Jesus Christ, you know, all things were made by the Son, through the Son, for the Son, but it was the will of the will of the Father that the eternal Son would never be the incarnate Son, except for because of sin. So now we've got a plan B or a rescue mission of God. What we really want to say is um, the world was made by, through, and for the Son so that Christ could be born. Right? Um he is the one who in the mind of God and the knowledge and wisdom of God is the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But he doesn't come among us only for that reason. What that tells us is that God will not let even the breaking of the world, even the breaking of our bodies, God won't relent there, right? Even if it means the breaking of the body of the Son. God made the world for Jesus Christ to be summed up in Jesus Christ. Right? It's really important. And so even exegetically, say a couple things there. Um, we could say the great mystery sign that Paul talks about of, you know, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but um, because Eve is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh in Genesis 2, right? For this reason, 
uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and leave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. He talks about that in Ephesians 5. Right? He goes right back to um, creation realities when he's talking about Christ in the church. Right? The Lord loves um, the body as his own, the new Eve. Right? The, the new Adam, the second Adam, loves the second Eve as his own body nourishes and cherishes her as his own flesh. And then Paul goes right back to the mystery sign in creation. Some people, people will say, you know, Genesis 3, right? The crushing of the serpent's head. That's the proto-Evangelion, the proto-gospel. Fine enough, actually, <laughs> the proto-proto-gospel then is Genesis 2, right? Um, male and female, he made them to be one flesh, right? Jesus Christ brings that mystery sign to its fullness, right? Paul does something like, that's Ephesians 5, but Paul does something like that in 1 Corinthians 6. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, right? He goes right back there again. So, it is the, it is the intention of God, right, that the two will become one flesh, Genesis 2, prior to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 can't overcome God's intention in Genesis 2, right? Um, that, that overcoming brings to fruition God's design there. I think that makes, man, that, that's, a, that's a big thing. That's a big, 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 big thing. So in so many ways, Kate, because another thing it does is uh, Jesus Christ is the redeemer of the world and the redeemer of the creation of which he's the mediator, right? And now, you, now you bring creation and redemption together. Right, so he's not a deputy lord, the redeemer of a creation, which he's not a part of, right, and the mediator of. You're bringing, you're bringing all the biblical witness together here. But if Jesus Christ is just kind of rendered an emergency um, action, the incarnation is an emergency action for sin, boy, you got, you got huge anthropological issues there. Yeah. I've noticed in our discussion, we haven't talked about like, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. I'm sort of wondering, like, to be honest, I like really struggle with the sacrificial system, why it's even enacted, why it's commanded, what it even like functionally does, and like I don't know. The renewed image it seems to me that you know, I mean, even as Hebrew says that about the blood of bulls and goats, and, like, can't take away sin. Mm-hmm. When I read that, I'm just like. <laughs> why, why even, like, what is this even about? And, you know, so I don't want to get us to get off the topic too much, but I not too much. But, yeah, let's let's talk about it. Um, first of all, well, okay, let's let's take that first of all. Um, now, God gives right designs, ordains um, the Levitical cultus. Right, He loves it um, to. To go to the temple with boat and gold, bull and goat, right, um, and to, to have the ironic blessing pronounced upon you. Can you therefore go away? If you're an Old Testament saint, can you go away saying, "I'm living in the peace and freedom of the forgiveness of sins and the delight of God"? You can, you can, but these are sacramental anticipations of that one who is to come, right? The Book of Hebrews is so important, not because it, not because it. it um, 
abrogates those as um, in and of themselves problematic because in light of the fullness of the coming of Jesus Christ in which they have their eternal significance, right? In light of Jesus Christ, to go back to that is a problem because he is the telos of that. He is the end of that. Um, the abrogation, the termination of that is in a repudiation of that. It's, a, it's an eternal carrying forth of the efficacy and the meaning and significance of that in the theology of Hebrews. But another thing that's so important here is, and this medievals used to talk about this, um, these are anticipating Jesus Christ as being our incarnate substitute who dies for us, right? That's telling us something profound about sin and redemption. God wishes to, re- God doesn't wish to, you know, work out his frustration with the fallen cosmos by, um, by punishing something, right? A bull a donkey, whatever. Nothing like that. Um, But in Jesus Christ, um, redeeming us, right, taking the flesh, as it were, putting off the flesh of Golgotha, um, rising as um, incorruptible, immortal, human, eternally human, that that humanity that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 can inherit the kingdom. He's doing the work right in the very depths of our being. Right, putting off our flesh in him. But another thing is it does is it tells us something about sin. You know, I said a little while ago, sin isn't of the con- isn't of our constitution. It's alien, right? It's parasitic. But it's not parasitic like lice. Does that make sense? Like like if if sin is something you could just kind of pick off yourself with tweezers like lice, right? Then you then there's all kinds of moral projects that could that could undo sin for us. A way you might want to think about sin is it's alien, but it doesn't lay on the surface of us. It's more like cancer. It's a disease, or it courses through our bodies. Right. So the only way, actually, to overcome sin is for Jesus Christ to become who we are and put off the flesh. He's doing something. He's doing something. Just oh man, like Calvin says, the angels stand agape. It's, it's so it's so profound and including us in it so that he can um, put to death that in us which is malformed, right? Not according to the image and preserve in us image and bring forth from the tomb image. Um, so sin goes deep, right? And it's, it's the whole of us, right? That's why Jesus Christ, you know, with the, with the church fathers, the Cappadocians worked out. He doesn't, he doesn't become a body without a human mind, let's say. Right, Apollinarian and things like that. He becomes the whole of our humanity because the whole of our humanity is corrupted by sin and therefore he does a redemptive act on the whole of our humanity in ways. Goats and bulls never come but their anticipations of that. We get to, we'll talk more about that. Maybe we get it. We get it. Those are topics we haven't done at Gregory House yet. The cross, right? The theology of the cross. Um, Jesus Christ is image of God. More to the point, what we've just talked about, he is the true measure of a human, right? If Genesis can't, if Genesis tells us that the true measure of a fish and a bird and a beast is a fish and a bird and a beast, but the true measure of of a human is God, what the New Testament tells us is the true measure of a human is God as human, the human God really, really important. It's a massive affirmation of our humanity. 
<clears throat> Jesus Christ, that visible image of the invisible God, the fullness of deity in whom there is everything human, is therefore the, the logos, the logic of our humanity, the standard of our image bearing, the substance of it, datum point of it, the controlling principle, the canon, you might say. Jesus Christ is the canon of what it means to be authentic image of God and enact authentic image of God. Therefore, human beings were made to exist under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can't be an authentic human being apart from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? It's the redemption of our humanity. Before and above all things, agent and heir of creation, God the Son fashioned the first humans in accord with an anticipation of the divine image that he would become in the fullness of time. Now, think about this. Um, Jesus Christ doesn't enter a, a, a humanity um, that's already extant. He doesn't merely do that. right? Now, if he did, all we could say is Jesus Christ was made in our image, right? And, is, and is, it seems to conform to our image what we're saying here is Jesus Christ is actually the archetype of humanity, right? Or as Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus Christ is the kephale, the head, the source of all humans. He's the mediation, the mediator of humanity, and all things are created through him to be summed up in him. He's not just the omega, he's the alpha. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so we can say this and must say this, and scripture talks like this, Jesus Christ is the antitype of Adam with respect to our redemption, right? Romans 5 talks like that. 1 Corinthians 15 talks like that. The second Adam, the last Adam, the one who undoes or, or redresses um, the failings and fallings of the first Adam. But there's more to be said here. He's not just the antitype, he's the archetype. Right? All, of hum all, all of human beings are patterned after and modeled after Jesus Christ. And we see that clearly, we see clearly in Scripture. I want you to understand, says Paul, that the head of every man, the source, the cavalier, is Christ. All things are made by him, through him, for him, to be conformed to him. Chief of all, the pinnacle of his creation, us. This is the way Irenaeus says it, and it's wonderful. For in times long past, it was said, he's talking about Genesis, it was said that man was created after the image of God, but it was not actually shown as of yet, for the word was as yet invisible, after whose image man was created. When, however, the word of God became flesh, he showed forth the image truly, since he became himself what was his image. You see the point? Jesus Christ is the source, the datum point, the head of all humanity. He's that. That's huge with respect to conversations about what it means to be the renewed image. We're conformed to the one who is the source, the very source of our humanity. You might say, therefore, that we're that we're that in, that in being renewed in Him and conformed to Him, we're actually um, regifted. You might say our authentic humanity. We're given back to ourselves, not in self-lordship, right? Not in autonomy. But under Jesus Christ, we're given our humanity back in him. Or we might say it like this. To be renewed and redeemed in Jesus Christ is a personalizing, 
humanizing reality. Humanizes us that way, right? Not making, not bringing us from subhuman to human, but from bringing us to perverted human to authentic human, right? We we can we can be and steward an authentic humanity in Jesus Christ, and not in any other way. How much time we got? Not much. Okay, let me say this. Tied to this, this reality that Jesus Christ is the image of God, true as full as ultimate sense, everything we want to say about what it means to be redeemed and then progressively conform to him has its data in him. The renewal of the image of God entails our regeneration, right? We're born anew by the Spirit. We become new, crea- new creations in Christ. The source and sum, the very substance of what it means to be human. The renewal of the image is about justification, right? Right standing as we participate in Jesus Christ's sonship, right? And become authentically sons and daughters of God and Him. Uh, participating in His unique sonship. A definitive, right? To be rendered holy and then to be progressively brought into fuller and fuller enactment of that as Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, forges His very existence in us, right? Gosh, I wish we could talk about Eucharist here. But as he forges his very existence in us, conforms us to himself, and frees us from the, the dead hands of fallen humanity, right? He, he releases us from that. So what we can say here with respect to images, um, the realities of the gospel in Jesus Christ affect our very human constitution, right, to the core, right? So it's so way bigger than getting saved. There's, a, there's a, um, a renewal of the image of God in us. Does that make sense? So what, you know, when we're proclaiming the gospel, what we're really doing is, in, is in, 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 the, in the authority of Jesus Christ, inviting people into um, real human authenticity, <laughs> right? Um, no. You guys don't say anything there. Let's talk about the perfected image. If Augustine said, you know, when Augustine talks about the fourfold state of humanity, there's one person, right, who lives in the perfected, perfected human existence. There's one person who is the perfected image of God. By the way, not even the saints who have passed before us, right? They're, what are they doing? They're, they're waiting and longing for the resurrection of the body, right? It's still penultimate. They're waiting for that. To be brought into perfection in Jesus Christ is a bodily reality. It has everything to do with our bodies. Conform to the embodied one. At present, believers are being renewed day by day into the image of God as a result of our being united to and conformed to Jesus Christ. That great hope, right, what we're pressing into, living into, is that it's a corporate glorification and resurrection um, of humanity. Um, what is now pink, right? what we now long for, we have a foretaste of, will be fully manifest. That Jesus Christ, who, is, who now lives into the true telos of what it means to be a human being, is bringing us there and ultimately will bring us, and bring us together, right? Because glorification is a corporate reality. It's not an individualistic one. Humanity 
glorified together and being brought into the fullness of Jesus Christ there. Um, now, gosh, we can talk about a lot of things here. I don't think we have too much time. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that. If we were to go back and look at those categories of, you know, we, were, we, we have an intellectual capacity and that's part of the image and a volitional and linguistic and so on and so forth. To be perfected in Jesus Christ means that we steward the whole of our humanity before the face of God um, in ways that now we are freed from all corruption. Right? This is part of, you know, when Paul says, eye has not seen, right? Ear has not heard, nor has it even entered into our mind what this is going to be like. Because truth be told, it's really hard to imagine even living, living free of fear and shame. Right? Two big, two big garden aspects. We've never, ever, ever done it. Never experienced that. To be utterly free of that. To be utterly free to live into and enact what it means to be an authentic human without, without being compromised by sin. Right? We're free from sin. Augustine would say in that fourfold state, he'd say, we're no longer able to sin. <laughs> right? That's not a diminishment of our freedom. It's not a closing down of our freedom. It's actually to be free to be who we were made to be. Right? In every way that constitutes image of God. So now, right, the way scripture talks here, I've got a couple texts here. You know them. The way scripture talks here is that um, we live in between two resurrections. Right? So raised with Jesus Christ and waiting, waiting the appearance of who we shall be. Right? Our life is now hidden with God and Jesus Christ. At the appearance of him that we long for, right? we shall be like him. So image of God here in the perfected state is basic to um, Christian hope. Right? It's part of um, the very substance of Christian hope that we're waiting for as we see anticipation, real anticipations of it, right? Real eschatological inbreakings of what it means to be authentically human. We're waiting for the perfection of that, right? And it will be the fullness of conformity to Jesus Christ. What I want to do next time we meet is I want to, I think I'm going to, I think I want to take like three hours and go back to Genesis and look at male and female, he created them, what it means to be male and female, what it means to be sinful as male and female, right? Statements of judgment in Genesis are, are um, relative to, right? And to the man, he said, and to the woman, he said, and then what it looks like to, to, to live into image of God as explicitly male and female, but male and female together in complementary way. That I think I'm gonna, that's, that's worth at least like three hours, right? We can, we can do two sections of that. What do you guys wanna say about this though? It's really interesting to hear this right after Will's talk last night at the group about gender dysphoria mm-hmm. and how um, like the the implications of those feelings of feeling being out of touch with your person in your body. Yep. Um, like this this is the answer of like knowing that it's not how it's supposed to be, but there are ways of becoming in touch with who you, who God made you to be yeah. um, without looking for like the transitioning and, and everything that Will was talking about last night. Uh, but it, it just gave, I guess, me a lot of hope 
that there are ways to talk about this and, and like Christ as healer and savior in our physical bodies. In our bodies. Yeah. 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 I mean, the pastoral issue is is um, real and heartbreaking, right? Where you can you can look in the mirror and say, "What I see gazing back at me repulses me, and I don't know how to engage it, and I'm horrified by what I see." The answer isn't. <laughs> Transitioning, right? So um, again, um, that that's come to the point of religion in our culture. All, everybody's writing about it, and talking about it right now. But the the the, um, the the glorification of the self and the self that is self-styled and fluid, right? That we can we can fall we can follow um, self-created in our image and ongoing um, manipulation of the self. That's just man, and it's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like there's so much that can be said about that too because I'm even thinking of like the emotional life of Jesus Christ which we don't often think about. So yeah, so we can talk we'll talk about that next time and we can talk I mean goodness, I mean theology is gritty stuff, right? Um, there's a reason that our primal parents when they sin, the first thing they do is what what do they cover? Not their eyes, not their heads, cover their genitals. Mm-hmm. Right? The fall is about penises, vaginas, right? This is a big deal, right? Though, by the way, those are sacramental signs, right? Biolo- um, biological realities, anatomical realities are sacramental signs of gender, which is rooted in the very life of God, right? <clears throat> and so um, it's something to mess, to mess with that, right? To mess with that is... is if, if one of the very first things God says is male and female, he created them, right? To mess with that, boy, you're, you're getting right at something that we're, now we're right in the warp and woof of creation. Can I say one more thing? Can you just think about broad biblical categories? I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but this has everything to do with the image of God. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth, right? That's Genesis 1, 28. Have you ever thought about the Great Commission as a reiteration of that? the renewal of humanity in Jesus Christ and the reconstituting of humanity in Jesus Christ comes with the Matthew 28, go, right? Proclaim everything that I've taught you, all of creation, right? And go baptizing, make disciples, be fruitful and multiply, right? It's, 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 a, it's a reiteration of uh, what's going on in Genesis 1. And it's an anticipation of rule and reign with Jesus Christ as co-heirs over all things, right? Um, manifest and enact the image of God. Uh, do that in, in a new creation, in a creation now that's brought into its fullness. Those three go together. That's a massive overarching biblical theology and a biblical um, uh, pattern, maybe you could say has everything to do with, you know, it plugs right into talking about image of God this way. The universe is expanding right now, right? We know that. Just growing and growing, and we, you know, the way lots of people talk is, you know, how can you be so, um, so self-centered and arrogant to think that this little speck of dust that's the earth and this galaxy, right, uh, and the cosmos, um, that it's significant. Have you ever thought about um, the reiteration of the Genesis, right? 
rule and reign with Jesus Christ, this, this cosmos that's going like this. Create, <laughs> uh, settle, build things, right? Not just here and all that Jesus Christ is king and lord of, as co-heirs of all things. Our future is pretty bright. I don't know about you guys, but I don't, I don't necessarily wake up most mornings saying, I'm a co-heir with Jesus All that the Father has, he gives to Jesus, and all that Jesus has from the Father, he shares with us. That's a, that's a, pretty, good, that's a pretty good deal. Isn't it? Pretty good deal. That's who we are.